while the, while the things are going around, while paper's being handed out, my prayer is that you'll respond to everything you've heard today through the announcements. And as Evelyn shared, quite, quite forcefully and... <laughs> But the, the truth is this, though. I was greatly encouraged because I've seen Evelyn not say boo to anybody at any time. Now she's up here saying, ah, ah. That's encouraging, seeing how she's matured and how God has grown her in so many ways. And so that, that's why, look, look I'm, I'm going to speak for half an hour, man, half an hour. But the reality is this. The, the book of Philippians is all about encouragement. We in our Christian life is all about encouragement. It's about blessing each other and about investing into each other as well. And as we've looked at over the past several weeks from the book of Philippians, we have looked at several things that we are encouraged to do in our Christian lives. The encouragement to see things as God sees them, irrespective of the circumstances that we face, that we see God's hand at work in those things. And because we see God working, we are then encouraged to live, live our lives in accordance with God's heart and accordance with God's desire, not our own. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain, as it says in Philippians 1.21. And because we're living in such a way, it's important that we live the right way, which is following the example, following the example that Christ has given us. And that's again, looking at those three things of, of selflessness, of humility, and of obedience and walking in line with that. And because then we are living and following that example, the encouragement was to persevere, to persevere. Why? Because it's continual. It doesn't stop. You don't reach a point during this lifetime and say, I have arrived. No, you never reach that point. It continues all the time. Until we go to glory, until God calls us home, we are continually in the process of being worked with. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 states that. Which means this, if these are the first things we've looked at, because when you read Paul's writings, I like the way he sets it up. Part one is always the theological or the foundational truths that are laid down. And the second part of his writings are always the practical applications and the divine conduct that we are called to. To put it in the simplest of ways, if this is who you are, this then is how you should live. That's how it works. And as we move into the second part of Philippians, we are looking at to at now more specifically the this then is how you should live part in Philippians chapter one, uh, sorry chapter three verses one through to fourteen, which we're going to kick off reading and then I'll open in prayer. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter three verses one to fourteen. Now I'm going to race through this, and so it really pays for you to follow along because it's not going to be up there, okay? Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through to 14. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. 
But whatsoever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ, that which is through faith in Christ, oh sorry, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold for that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you now as we look at your scriptures that you will teach us, that by your spirit who dwells within us now will reveal to us the wonderful things that are found within your law. Father, please teach us now. Please minister to us now. Please change us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, that is a big passage. From Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14, that's a big passage. And there are four sections within that passage that you could teach a whole series on, which I am not going to do. What I am going to do is give you a bit of context here. Okay? Verses 1 to 4, Paul lays out, watch out for others. That's done in these verses here. As a note here, Paul speaks, and I think as I look here, speaks to the weaknesses of our nature because we can be so easily fooled by things that impress us. People have a specific qualification. Wow. People look a certain way. Wow. People can do certain things. Wow. Paul says, watch out. He says, look out for those false teachers, those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And what he's actually referring to there are the Judaizers of that time. So you had a whole bunch of Judaizers or teachers that were trying to come in there and trying to gain some sort of control. They were trying to bring Christians who are now under the law, of, under that of grace, trying to bring them back under the law. And he says, watch out for those people. Yeah, they may sound good, but in their effort to gain control, they might bring you back into a sense of rules and regulations, things to adhere to. When he talks about evildoers, these are false teachers that were coming in and they were trying to take the focus off Jesus Christ and putting it on them, saying that we are, we are the means by which you gain acceptance to God. It is this church, it is this church that you need to come to, this specific church, not the person of Christ, this specific church that you find your salvation. That's why Paul refers to them as evildoers. The mutilators of the flesh, those were people who would do physical acts in a, gain, in a means to gain spirituality. So their spirituality would be, I haven't eaten for three weeks, I am so holy. Their spirituality might be, oh, I have, I have cut myself in, in, in a means to earn my acceptance by God. 
And that's why Paul says, watch out, because in today's church, what do we do? Someone's a great speaker? Yeah, man, that's the one. I love that speaker, as opposed to I love the God that speaker's talking about. It might be a guy who sits there, and they're missionaries. And I've, I've, please, don't get me wrong. I, I, I admire missionaries and what they do, but we sometimes put missionaries on a pedestal, and we place them in a place that God had never intended them to be. So that's why he says, watch out. The second part he says, not only watch out, but it leads on to a warning for ourselves. Because what does Paul do now in verses 4 to 6? What he does, he talks about his own qualifications. He says, if anybody has something to boast in when it comes to the flesh, man, I could boast in even more. Once again, a reflection of our evil hearts and how we even promote ourselves. You see, Paul has established already how he sees God's hand at work. He sees that what is in Jesus Christ far outweighs anything else that this world provides. But in this particular passage here, in addressing the teachers from verses 1 to 4, he does a one-upman thing. He does one-up. You know know those people who always go one-up? Oh, yeah, I did this. Yeah, I did that and this. Hey, man, do you remember? Did you hurt yourself? Yeah, yeah, I hurt my knee and my ankle. You get those people who do, do one up all the time. So Paul sits here and says, you want someone who wants to say how impressive they are? Man, I could go one better. And he lists everything. You know what? They call I'm, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In regards to law, man, I'm faultless. Man, you, you want zeal? Man, I'm persecuting the church. All these people are saying stuff, and I'm spitting everywhere, sorry. All these people are saying stuff, and Paul is sitting there saying, man, I could go one better. But this, once again, reflects our own hearts. We have to watch out for ourselves. How we, how we ourselves can look at the stuff that we do and place ourselves on pedestals that God had never intended us to be upon. So there's a warning for us in verses 4 through to 6. That's why if they've reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Then there's the weighing up of what's important. And see, it's in this passage that the greatest of encouragements is found. And this is the one I'm going to be looking at today. But it is here that we see Paul saying, this, this is what I have here. All my earthly wealth, all my earthly possessions, all my earthly accomplishments. But in comparison to the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, it pales in comparison. It is not worth it. It's about weighing up what's really important. And we've looked at pressing towards the mark and and all that sort of stuff, which I'm not going to focus on so much today because it's from there with these three things of watching out for others, of warning for ourselves, of weighing up what's important is to wisely move forward. With everything that we know, with everything that we know, I like how he sits there and says, not that I have already obtained all this. It's not that I'm already there. He understands that it's a continual working that carries on throughout his whole life. And, what, and you, you know this. You know this, not only in your own spiritual lives, but in life in general. When you think you're there, when you think, I've done it, I've made it, you're not. And, and, you, and you understand that. But... Because each of these things could be because each of these things could be sermons in and of themselves, this is the most important encouragement for each of us to have. It's upon this truth 
that those first four encouragements or those first four things that we learned, the first four encouragements of seeing, living, following, and persevering, it's those four things revolve around this. Everything that you learn after this revolves around this specific truth, this specific encouragement that all of us are given as children of God, actually even as non-Christians. And what is that? To know, to know Christ. Weighing up what's important, it's about knowing Christ. As a non-Christian, it is important for you to know Christ. Why? Because your whole life is nothing outside of Christ. You cannot make yourself acceptable to God. You cannot deal with your sin. You cannot change your nature. No matter how much of a nice person you are, and I know a lot of nice people, and it doesn't matter how much money you earn, it doesn't matter what career you have, it doesn't matter anything about that. If you do not know Christ, then you stand before God as sinful and apart from Him. So that's where it starts. The knowledge of Christ is what leads to life. And so when Paul sits there and says, to know Christ, he's speaking as a Christian. And we are told in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. That's from the old King James. But it's basically saying this, that as you have trusted in Christ, it doesn't stop once you know who Christ is. That relationship continues. That relationship deepens. And what I find fascinating about Paul's statement here in verse 10 of Philippians 3 is that he, if anybody within the New Testament could say he knew Christ. This is somebody who, who sat there, who encountered him personally on this road straight on the way to Damascus. He experienced personally the, the actual voice of Jesus Christ who spoke to him as an individual and transformed his soul. So why is it then that whilst he's in prison and he's been through a whole bunch of different things, why is it now that he sits here and says, I want to know Christ? I want to know him. I mean, you read through the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we're not going to read all of these, but in the book of Acts, you have story after story after story. I'll just jump through all these to the end here. Okay. Story after story after story of God involving himself with Paul's life, of the Lord Jesus revealing himself. For example, in Acts 13, verse 7, you have a sorcerer that goes around and is harassing Paul. Paul is doing what he's doing, and he's preaching the gospel, and in the divine discernment that God has given him, he sets everything aright. Read that story. But you see the evidence of God's power through Paul's ability to discern. In, in Acts chapter 16, verses 25 to 30, it's when Paul and Silas are in prison. In, the Philippian, in, the Philipp, in, in Philippi, they're in a Philippian jail. They are chained. They are singing praises to God at midnight. And then God sends a miraculous deliverance by sending an earthquake. Now think about this. They are locked. They are chained. Everything's locked up. An earthquake happens that opens the doors and unlocks the chains. That's insane. How many earthquakes do you know? Are you handcuffed? Oh, hey, look at that. And the godly protection when he's in a shipwreck and God provides his deliverance in a shipwreck and he gets safely ashore. He, he got the natives there, probably islanders, but they got the natives there. Here they're looking at this guy who shows up. He gets bitten by a snake. He sits there, shakes off the snake, goes about his day. 
They're all sitting there going, hey, hey, he got bitten by a snake. He must have done something bad. Oh, he's deserving of a sign. Nothing happens to him, and he represents the greatness of God to these islanders. I'm not going to say this, I'm warned, but I'm just saying. <laughs> all I'm saying is this. You want to know how relationships deepen? You want to know how knowledge increases in the relationships that you share? You want to know how to really know somebody? You go through stuff with them. You go through stuff with them. This is what Paul experienced. He experienced personally God's divine discernment, the miraculous deliverance, and godly protection in each and every. I mean, this is three of numerous instances where God revealed himself as faithful over and over and over again. This, this is how relationships grow. Okay. To know Christ, to know him more intimately, to know him better, to know him greater, to know him more. This was such a longing in Paul's life, even as close as he was and as much as God has taken him through, he wanted more of him. Why? Because in knowing more of him, Revealed an intimacy, a deepening, of, because he received not only more of him, God received all of him in the process. To know somebody in such a way that they got involved with each other and together were able to accomplish amazing things. You see, for those who, how many of you have been married for longer than 20 years? Raise your hand. Praise God. Praise God. When you've been married for a long time, when you've been married for a long time, you like to, you like to sort of keep things fresh. You like to, you, you, get, you know each other, and it can get to the point where the relationship you share, even after 20 years, maybe even after 15 or 10 years, can grow somewhat stale. You become comfortable. You become relaxed. You become, ah, my wife, yeah, she's there. You know what I mean? You become, you become lazy in your relationship with that. And, and, okay, a relationship, what? A relationship needs to be nurtured. A relationship needs to be protected. A relationship needs to be developed. So it is with your relationship with God. See, the things that I found with my wife is that when we do stuff together, our bond strengthens. When we go through trials together, we are there for each other and we support each other. When we do things together, we're investing not only into each other, but say, as parents, investing into our kids. We do that together, that increases our bond. As a family, getting involved in other people's lives, that increases our bond. So too it is with our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ calls us not to be on the sidelines doing nothing, but doing stuff with him together for the kingdom of God. And in that, you discover his faithfulness. In that, you discover his power. In that, you discover his goodness. In that, you discover his wisdom. It's in those things you discover. You won't know anything about your relationship with Jesus if you're sitting there not doing anything in your relationship with Jesus. This is why Paul sits here in prison. He goes, I want to know him more. This is why. This is why, okay? Our relationship with Jesus can never grow stale nor become tiresome if we are discovering more and more of him. Or in Paul's words, knowing Christ. Knowing the reigning Christ who sits in judgment. Knowing the mystery of God incarnate, 1 Timothy 3.16. Knowing the word made flesh. 
knowing him who is limitless, the limitless Lord. Can you, Job, fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty or the inexhaustible nature of God? For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. It's limitless. There's no confining who he is. He is, as Reverend Zacharias describes him, he is the perpetual novelty. He is always exciting. And and the only time God isn't exciting to one's heart, or if we have lost that sense of awe and wonder, it is probably because we aren't looking in the right direction. It's probably because we're not looking the right way or something has hindered us from seeing him in all his beauty and in all his, ma- in all his majesty. When the awe of God is lost, when the greatness of Christ is diminished, when knowledge of the Spirit is darkened, it is not because he is not awesome, he is not great, or he is not noble. It is because we have allowed things in our lives to affect our hearts, our vision, and our mind. This is why the knowing of Christ is prioritized in Paul's life, and this is why the knowing of Christ should be prioritized in ours as well. This is why Paul shared with the Corinthians, imitate me even as I imitate Christ. As Paul sought to know him better, and us following that example means that we too should seek to know him better. And you know how that's done? That's done by doing stuff with him by stepping out, by claiming the promises, by spending time in the Word, by spending time in His presence, by venturing out. If you know, I encourage you, learn the promises of God, then step out by faith to see whether those promises are true. They will be. But the one who benefits from that is you, because you stepped out and found out, well, God, you said you would provide all my need, and you did. Well, God, you said I can do all things through Christ who strengthens, and you have. Well, God, you said by your grace, by your mercy, this could take place, and it has. You won't know if you don't. But this is what he invites you to do, to know Christ. That's Paul's priority. That is is to be our priority, to know Christ, which follows up with this, not only to know Christ, but to know the power of his resurrection. The resurrection power. Have you ever been in the presence of a powerful person? It might be a CEO who has the power to hire and fire people. It might be like Ash who has the power to break a human bone. It may be in the sports arena where physical power is deemed the final measurement of who is there. But in the political sphere, it might be those in the halls of government that can pass policies. Paul states that in knowing Christ too, comes to the knowledge of his resurrection power. The power of God through faith in Christ that can raise the dead to life. The power of Christ who is able to transform a person's life. Uh, The power of Christ that could take one from the, the, the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light. The resurrection power that destroys the barrier of sin that separates sinful humanity from a holy God, not by changing God, but by changing us. You see this here. That Christ, this is the power, the power that raised Christ to life, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. The power that conquered death, uh, 24 to 26. Then the end will come when the hands over the kingdom 
to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Power that defeated the grave. Power that reclaimed the authority that Adam relinquished. When Adam, when Adam sinned and ate of the fruit that he was not supposed to eat, he handed authority that he had, that God had given to him, to the enemy. This is why in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was up on the temple and all the kingdoms of the, of the world were shown to him, he said, this is what the devil said to him, he said, all of these kingdoms I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. You know why he could say that? Because legally, legally, everything had belonged to the prince of the power of the year. That's why he had the right to make such a claim. But when Christ came and destroyed the power of the devil on the cross, all of that authority was taken off the devil. He reclaimed the authority that Adam relinquished. And that now belongs in the hands of who it freely belongs to, the person of Jesus Christ. We were about 5, 5, 8, 17, okay? Uh, 17 and 18. That broke Satan's hold. This is the power that broke Satan's hold. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That was destroyed. This is that power. This is the resurrection power of God. The power that bore sin's judgment. Um, he who knew no sin became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 29. That grants us the authority to command the great commission that was given to us in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20. And that established Jesus as Lord. And we sang that. And it was made reference to today. That every knee shall bow, that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the power of God we now know in the person of Jesus Christ. This is who we have now been called to walk with. And you'll notice the interweaving of both this one, of knowing the power of his resurrection, with the first point of knowing Christ himself. You see, when you know Jesus, you experience the transforming power in your conversion. As you know the transforming power of your conversion, you know more of Jesus. It, 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 it's interlinked. You cannot have one without the other. You experience both, not only the knowledge of who Christ is, of who Christ is, but the power. Actually, if you know Jesus Christ, you know power. Simple as that. That's the easiest way to put it. If you know Jesus Christ, then you know power. And because you know power, because you know Christ, we are told this third thing, to know the participation in his suffering. Now, it is in the living of godly lives that suffering takes place. It is in the living of godly lives that suffering takes place. Yea, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall no, not shall, will suffer persecution. Why? Because you live according to a standard that is divine. You hold to a truth that is godly. You live in accordance with righteousness. And because you do such, you know what will happen? You will be harassed and persecuted for it. Actually, Jesus warned his disciples. Jesus warned us. He says this to his disciples. You will be hated for my name's sake. How's that? How's that for a cheer? How's that for a motivating speech? Say, hey, hey, you want to follow me? You know what? You're going to be hated because of me. 
You're going to be hated because of me. And then he reminds us with this. But take note of this. You will be hated because of me, but if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Oh, thanks, Lord. I'm going to be hated. At least they hated you first. That's, that's our comfort there. That's our comfort. Okay? This is, uh, there is, sorry, there is an open defiance by society today toward biblical Christianity. There is. It is evident by the harassment, it's evident by the condemnation of biblical truth, and it is the effort to silence Christians when they stand on these godly values. Look at what Israel, what happened with Israel Folau. Look what happened. There was actually another young gentleman over in London. Same thing. He got cast out of a social work course because he claimed the biblical truth. And they, they actually, they took him to court and they tried to arrest him. He won, he won a, a, a lawsuit against the university that cast him out because of it. But all because he shared. He was just a, a student who shared about biblical truth. This is evident today. There is an effort to silence Christian voices in the, market, in the marketplace. Why? Because... The world loves darkness. We read that in John chapter 3, verse 19. It talks about how light has come into the world and man preferred darkness rather than light. That's why. Why? Because light exposes the darkness. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. That's why. You carry on reading. Because Jesus brings judgment. John 16, verses 7 to 11. Very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. But when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. You want to know why people don't like Christians or people don't like biblical truth or people don't like Jesus? It's because judgment comes. Because Jesus alone saves. And this is one of the biggest things in the sense of the exclusivity. A lot of people say, you're too narrow-minded. You're too exclusive. How can Jesus be the only way? Why? Because Jesus said that himself in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Acts chapter 4, 12 says what? Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That's why people hate Jesus. Why? Because there is only one way, John 14, 6, which I've already shared, and forgiveness can only be received. That's why. You want to know, when you look at the encouragement to know, this is why there is opposition to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. The reason why Peter encourages us to suffer for doing what is right is because that should be the stock standard attitude or expectation of what we're to receive if we live according to Jesus' way, if we live in obedience to him. Now, please, don't get me wrong. Don't be the type of person that don't, don't go around and, and how can I say this for being offensive? Don't go around and be like a complete egg and, 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 and a complete egg and doing stuff. And then people sit there and say, yeah, like, you know, you're not working properly. Instead, you're going around preaching all the time instead of doing your job. 
and then say, you shouldn't be doing that, and then say, oh, you're persecuting me because of my faith. No, no, you, you, you're being told off because you're doing dumb things at work. All right, there's a difference. So don't, don't do that. You have a lot of Christians that put themselves in situations, claim it's persecution when it's really them just being idiotic. You have to be wise. You have to be wise. That's what you must do. So when it says the participation, to know the participation in the sufferings, understand this, that if you are going to live in accordance with Jesus Christ and what he desires, you are going to suffer for it. Because we live in a world that is in direct opposition to the heart of God and to everything God stands for. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to sort of like get you to go out and you call, or like some army that walk out and, go, ooh, ooh, and prepare for a fight. I'm not, no, no, going out, going out and loving on people the way Jesus loved on us. That's what it is. But see, these are, these are the things that we encouraged to do so far. We are encouraged to see God's hand at work and to understand that, especially when we're in dire circumstances, even if you're sharing to somebody and they want nothing to do with you, know that God is working, to see God's hand at work, to be encouraged to live in accordance with God's word and God's heart and God's desires. Why? Because there's nowhere else to go, really. Really. You can't, you can't rely on yourself. You can't be trusted. Your heart is deceitful. My heart is deceitful. So we need to live in accordance with God's heart to follow his example. To follow his example, not the examples of others. When you look at the way Jesus handled himself in different circumstances, take that on board. When he, when he shared with the woman at the well, when he shared with the lady, who, who, with the Pharisee that was in the house, when he got his feet washed with tears, when he shared, you look at the way Jesus conducted himself. He spoke grace to those that are in need of grace. He spoke law to those who are religious. When it was time to be humble, he spoke humbly. When it was time to be quiet, he was quiet. When it was time to rest, he had a rest. Be wise. Follow the example, that of selflessness, that of humility, and that of obedience. And to persevere in that. This is not going to happen tonight. It's not, this is a continual living out day by day by day. I've been a Christian now for 27 years. 28? 28 years. Wow. I've been a Christian now for 28 years. Has it gotten easier? No. If anything, I have seen how much sin is still in me, even as a Christian of 28 years. And I know more, I, know, I need to know more of, of my dependence upon Christ and upon Christ himself, even 28 years later. But that's why this is so important, that we are encouraged to know Jesus. I would encourage you to take time out sometime this week, tonight, tomorrow morning, whatever it might be, and just cry out to the Lord and say, I want to know you. Not, not because of what Pastor Joe said, not because of what other people have said. I just want to know you. I want to spend time reading your word, not because I've got to do my quiet time, but because I want to know you. I want to spend time in the word, not because I've got to prepare for my Bible study, but because I want to know you. Not because I've got to prepare for a sermon, but because I want to know you. I want to step out by faith and claim a promise, not because I can go next week and say, I shared the gospel with someone, but because I want to know you. That's what it is. That is what we're encouraged to do, to know Christ, to know his resurrection power, and to know his suffering. And I guarantee you this, that if you step out by faith in knowing who Christ is, you will experience his power, and in the trials and sufferings that you come across, you will be able to overcome 
because he that is great, he who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. But you won't know that if you sit here and do nothing. So that's my encouragement for you. Although that didn't sound very encouraging at the end. <laughs> but that's my encouragement for you, brothers and sisters. Um, look, we're not going to sing. I'm going to close in prayer now. Um, you, you saw Evelyn. You saw Aaron. You heard the announcements. Here's a chance to get to know him by stepping out and doing stuff. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the example and the exhortation Paul gives us to know you and to know the power of your resurrection, to know the fellowship of your sufferings, that we might be made conformable to your death, that we might become more like Jesus. Father, I pray you will help us to be people that are doers of your word and not just hearers only that we'll be people that will develop and be developed by you as we spend more time with you, not only in the word, not only in your presence, but in living life. So, Father, we ask for you to dismiss us now. We pray, Lord, that you will hear our cries, that you will revive our spirits. Father, that you will bring revival within the hearts and in the minds of Grace Christian Church. And we ask for you to dismiss us now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you very much for that, brothers and sisters. The prayer team will be at the front. If you want to be prayed for, if you want to be prayed about something you want to release, let go, then come on up. We would love to pray for you this morning.